Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. I'm going to read tonight from the 23rd chapter of Luke. This is the last Sunday of the liturgical year and the last Sunday in our worship series, Four Questions and a Funeral. By liturgical year, I mean that our worship, along with the rest of the Christian church around the world, travels on an arc through the year, and we have come to the end of that arc for this year. This day on the church's calendar is known as Christ the King Sunday. And next Sunday, we start all over again with Matthew's Gospel, and we anticipate again the birth of a child and the coming of the Messiah. For the worship series that is ending tonight, we have been asking questions of Jesus along with the stories in Luke, and all the questions that Jesus has been asked over these last several Sundays are located by Luke in Jerusalem during literally the last several days of his life. For tonight, we are entering the story just hours away from three funerals, actually. And we're reading the traditional Lucan text for Christ the King Sunday. And technically, tonight, the question that we're focusing on is more of a request than an inquiry. Luke 23, 32 through 48. And two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching, and the leaders scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked that one, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. So said a convicted criminal sentenced to death by empire, hung alongside Jesus in the place called Skull. We are getting what we deserve for our deeds. This, while he suffocated to death slowly on an instrument of torture designed for the public exhibition of punishment, designed for public shaming in the first century equivalent of social media, crucified on an elevated roadside, an obscene scene one could not avoid seeing on the way into or out of that city. We are getting what we deserve for our deeds. How did the empire do it? How did it make anyone believed they deserved death, and specifically this death, the suffering, shaming, subhuman spectacle of it? Maybe it's not that hard, actually, to infect the spirits of the marginalized with thoughts of their own deserving of marginalization. Maybe you just have to layer on the microaggressions, one on top of the other, the name calling, the slurs, the misgendering and dead naming, the workplace jokes that make you uncertain if it's safe to put photos of your family on your desk, Maybe before that, you start with the families of origin whose own prideful, fearful identity is somehow staked on everyone remaining exactly as their parents and grandparents imagined them to be, who cannot bear change because of what it will mean for their own ideas of themselves, and who will eventually make holidays harder than hell, the unholiest of days. Maybe you sexualize and politicize gender identity and gender expression as a distraction from your greed or racism or corruption or whatever else you don't want people thinking about. Maybe you say drag queens ought not be around kids. Maybe you introduce grooming as a code word against your political opponent. Maybe you call anything pornography that tries to say what's true about human identity in its most colorful countenances. Maybe you ban books, convincing people that if their kids can't see it in print, it'll never become true. Maybe you ask, what were you wearing? How late were you out? How many drinks did you have? When someone tells you they were assaulted, that they were afraid, that they were threatened. Maybe you say club life is not good life. They shouldn't have been out that late. They should have known better. Maybe you normalize violence and sacramentalize guns as a God-given right and keep moving the goalpost for how many would be too many, how many would be exactly enough for us to change our minds about what is sacred and what is profane. Maybe you fuck with the category so much for so long that we can't see the profanity in brutality, and we can't see the sanctity of the dancers, 
the revelers, the friends seeking a night of celebration before a day of somber remembrance. It's Transgender Day of Remembrance, friends, November 20th every year, when we say with defiance that nobody deserves to die for being who they are. Why is that contested? Maybe the religionists and the civic leaders collude, not just in assigning blame and dispensing punishment, but also in shaming people into thinking that they deserve what they get. Maybe they have long understood that shame is a powerful, self-destructive weapon tucked away inside each of us, sleeping most of the time but so easy to awaken with a critical word or a side-eye glance. You know, we're not born with it. There's nobody as shameless as a baby. Coming naked and squalling into this world, spread-eagled, screaming for attention, peeing and pooping indiscriminately, and pretty soon laughing at the exact people who have to clean it up. Like the originary humans in the originary garden, naked and unashamed, Genesis 2 says. Exposed, but not embarrassed. Unaware that there's any reason for shame in the full, lived image of God, personhood of every one of us. And then, Genesis 3, the brokenness of it all and the shame that holds its hand, and the necessity of fig leaves for cover, and God at her sewing machine stitching together our concealment, relieving our shame the best she can in the world as it is now. God who is not interested in our remaining ashamed. God who will release us from all that forever in her own good time. Isaiah 25 then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of God's people will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. See, when God gets everything God wants, we are not ashamed. We do not feel that we are getting what we deserve for our deeds while the air leaks out of our lungs, while the enemy steals our life from us. So here is Jesus, himself exposed, bearing the shame of taunts and jeers, the name-calling, the slurs, the nakedness. He wears only the profanity of their brutality and the blasphemy of their sarcasm and anti-Semitism, Messiah, King, Jew, denigrating isolating, ostracizing, marginalizing. One of the pair of criminals crucified alongside him, the Romans were nothing if not efficient, joins in the sadism, mimics the insults he's heard from passersby. Not much of a messiah there, are you, buddy? If you were, you'd have done something about our little situation by now, huh? It's hard to blame him. 
The weight of his own powerlessness pulls him down, holds him low. The other, somehow, improbably, still has the capacity to imagine beyond the intensity of his suffering in the present moment, still has the wherewithal to consider that there might be something more, something beyond the skull, beyond the ropes and wood and nails, beyond the blood and sweat and shit, beyond the death that eventually comes for us all. Jesus, he says, he knows his name. And now we know he's been paying attention to current events, evaluating the rumors that travel in front of this man, forming his own opinions about what might be happening, or maybe just reaching out with one of his last breaths to express one shimmering shard of bright, hot hope. Jesus, he says. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me, my body broken, my blood spilling. Remember me, naked and ashamed. Remember me, exposed and suffering. Remember me, indoctrinated to believe that I deserve what I get. Remember me as I lay dying as you lay dying, as we die, as if the dead can remember anything. It is a profound statement of, what, did you think I was going to say faith? Desperation? Does it matter? Because the tradition says that Jesus had already pled the case of his perpetrators, commending their forgiveness to God's own heart. Forgive them, he had already said. They don't know what they're doing, which is about the most generous gift I imagine he could give to any of us. Mercy for our dithering, forgiveness for our fecklessness, grace for our hand-wringing. I have a friend who routinely responds to the worst bad news with what she calls the dance of impotent rage. Forgive them for that too, he said, for their impotent rage, the powerlessness against the shame that wells up in their own hearts and turns their tongues to whips for lashing out at the least of these. Jesus, remember me, says the one, and Jesus, we know, will not forget, in spite of the power of real suffering, turn us all into narcissists. He offers to his criminal neighbor the promise of his remembrance. Today, today, he says, you'll be with me in paradise, he pledges. And it's an absurdity that rivals his most hilarious parables. Who speaks of paradise from a crucifix? Who promises splendor from deprivation in extremis? It's an unusual word for the Bible, paradise. It's used only three times in the whole New Testament, only once in the Gospels, right here in Luke 23. It's on loan from Old Persian in Hebrew and Aramaic and Syriac and Greek. It's a word for enclosure, like 
the private garden or personal park outside the home of wealth or royalty, an outdoor delight on the perfectest of perfect days, clear waters, soft grasses, fruitful trees, peaceable companions from among the array of animal species, paradise. A word adopted by post-Bible Christians to express the hope that beyond this reality, beyond this lived experience, and even beyond this suffering, there is something beautiful waiting for us. And as much as it pulls our vision forward, this possibility of paradise, I'd suggest that Jesus is here also pulling his co-convicted, co-conspirator back to a paradise, back to a paradise that they do not themselves remember, but of which they have both heard, that originary garden where no one is ashamed, where no one imagines that they deserve to suffer, where no one's mind and spirit have yet been colonized by shame. Yes, today, Jesus says, we're going there today, together, he says, and all I can do at the end of this story is hope that the criminal believed him. But what if he didn't? What if in the hours to come, his breathing more and more labored, his death creeping closer and closer, he did not believe that the bloodied, battered man beside him wearing nothing but a crown of thorns could really keep that promise? What if the suffering he bore in that moment weighed more to him than a whole flock of flighty, feathery hope? What if his desperation couldn't last, and in the end he cursed his own fate, spat his own name out of his mouth, ashamed to die here like this for all the world to see? I say, it wouldn't matter a whit. Because the story we tell is that everything that is belongs to Christ the King. Everything and all things. For in him all things, in heaven and on earth, were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to God's self all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of that cross. How many things? All things. All things, including this present suffering. All things, including the blood on the dance floor. All things, including the spent shells and the powder residue. All things, including the shattered bones and bodies. All things, including the broken spirits and the PTSD and the impotent rage. All things, including the criminals, one on either side. All things, including the soldiers and the empire that paid them, the dancers and the one who shot them. All things, including the friends who stayed and the ones who didn't. All things God was pleased 
to reconcile to God's self by making peace through the blood of that cross. How long, O Lord, the one sufferer asked the other. Today, the Lord said. Today, in the garden with me, no more shame. You don't deserve this. Last night, I got a little video from Tracy and Caroline, a little Marco Polo, just 23 seconds of happy chaos and noisy chatter from just the other side of that wall. There was a clothing swap last night at Finn's place. There were too many trans and gender diverse folks to count in there, trying on outfits, showing off to each other, rejoicing in their bodies, sharing the shards of bright hot hope that each have grabbed onto for dear life. A little paradise for a little while on the night before the trans day of remembrance, a little garden of goodness where no one is ashamed where no one imagines that they deserve anything but joy and laughter and good company and cute clothes. <laughs> and my eyes are getting older. It's hard to make out specifics on the little screen of my gigantic phone. And Tracy didn't actually say so, but I'm pretty sure she was just protecting his privacy because I'm pretty sure that he was there. that Jesus was in the crowd trying on clothes in various states of dress, unashamed in the garden that is Finn's place with the ones who yearn for paradise. All of them reconciled to God's heart through his own suffering. Today, Jesus said, today. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.